You're listening to Productive Flourishing. Thanks for joining us today. It looks like asking for help when you need it. And it looks like actually feeling your feelings instead of stuffing them down with work or wine or planning or shopping or one of the many, many things that we do to, to not feel our feelings and, and helping other people and bearing witness to someone else's pain. I know that can be extremely tough for someone to watch someone that you love grieve or um, just go through a really hard time without trying to fix it or without trying to find something to relate or, or anything like that. Those are, that to me is being strong. It's, it's not muscling through. It's not, you know, pushing it aside. That to me is fear. That's That's being afraid. That was Andrea Owen, the proud author of 51 ways to live a kick-ass life and her recently released book, how to stop feeling like shit, 14 habits that are holding you back from happiness. She joins me today to jam about the habits and shame stories that hold us back from happiness and success. Throughout the episode, we discuss how our stories, habits, and coping mechanisms lead us further away from being able to catch ourselves in the moment, whether those moments are right when we're baking muffins for folks who don't need them or after we've said something we wish we wouldn't have. This episode contains cable-friendly language, so no F-bombs, but if you have small kids in the background or maybe you're listening to this at work, maybe listen to this one when they go to bed or when you're out for your walk. I'm Charlie Gilkey, and this is Productive Flourishing. Welcome to Productive Flourishing, where we explore how to do the work that matters so you become your best self in the world. I'm your host, Charlie Gilkey, and I'm joined by Angela Wheeler and other guests who will share their stories, insights, wins, and challenges in the hopes that our journeys and stories will help you with yours. Now, on to the show. Andrea, thanks so much for joining me today. Um, I've really loved reading um, your book, How to Stop Feeling Like Shit, 14 Habits That Are Holding You Back. And I love your voice and and what you've been going through. So um, I think this is going to be fun. And thanks for joining me today. Oh, Charlie, thank you so much. Okay, so this is your sophomore book, meaning your second book, and it follows 52 Ways to Live a Kick-Ass Life. Mm-hmm. And so I was thinking about that journey. So it's really living a kick-ass life, which is really sort of on that positive, you know, the world is your oyster or carpe diem sort of sort of side mm-hmm. of things. And a natural second book would be more of that, right? Uh, right. But this one zags and it actually goes to how to stop feeling like shit. So it has a different sort of pain point and frame. And I'm really curious, like, how did you know, or how did this book come to you? Did it come to you naturally in the sense where it's like, oh, this is obviously what I need to talk about? Or was it reader feedback from the first one? It's like, but what about this type of thing? Kind of both, actually. And thank you so much for asking that question. And I've never really thought of it that way. But it's funny, you know, anyone who's ever written a book or even done a big creative project like this, I think I always liken it to having a baby and like it's it's so much work and then you have this brand new baby and you're like, never again. That's kind of how I felt when I wrote my first one. And I honestly, it felt like I'd put everything I knew about personal development in that first book. But what ended up happening, of course, uh, many authors say, we don't find books, books find us. And that's what happened with this one. So I think it was a combination of, of that as well as me just paying attention to what my clients and women in my groups and my community were struggling with and myself too. You know, I say throughout this book many times, this isn't, you know, I'm not saying like, here's what all of you are doing. You know, I'm raising my hand too and saying, we do these things. And it started, it was mostly born from 
I went to San Antonio, Texas in 2014 and was trained. Uh, Brene Brown and her senior faculty put on a training a couple of times a year, I think. And it's in her, for those people listening that don't know who she is, she's a researcher and author who has dedicated her professional life to studying topics like shame and connection and authenticity and courage. And her primary work is around shame. And that's what I was certified in. And she refers to a handful of behaviors that she calls armor. And she says, these are the things that we do that we think are protecting us. But at the end of the day, they're not, they're, they're, they're causing disconnection in our lives. So I loved that and resonated so deeply with it. It's just one small part of this, this bigger program. And what I noticed that it was more than just a handful of behaviors. <laughs> I was seeing a pattern in my own life. And again, my clients and, and people in my community, and I wrote them all down. And many of them have some overlap, but they are all definitely distinct. And that's really where the book was born. And uh, it's it was so obvious to me when I wrote the book. I'm like, no one's going to look at this book and read that list of 14 behaviors and go, I don't do any of those. I don't need this book. I don't do any of those. And, and I kind of half joke that this looks like some people's to-do list every day, but that's really where it came from. And yeah, to answer your question, it was kind of both of those things. So as you were doing this inventory, I, what often happens and in, in when we're in sort of personal development, personal mastery work, like mm-hmm. people think you reach a certain point where you get your shit figured out. And then you're good and you never have to return to those things, right? Just sort of this belief I think people have. But I think when we do, once we've gone through something like a book launch and you've done that sort of victory lap, like there are things in my experience where you thought you were done with it, but mm-hmm. it's come back up for you in a different way or more powerfully than you than it was before you got rid of it last time. Did you discover yeah. any of those on your list? Totally. So, you know, what's funny is one of the things that came up that I did out of all of the 14 habits, the one that I felt like I didn't really struggle with that much was the imposter complex. Imposter complex, women tend to struggle with imposter complex more than men, but I, I know there are some men out there that struggle with it. And so if you don't know what that is, it's it's that feeling like everyone's going to figure out that I have no idea what I'm doing or attributing your success and accomplishments to luck or connections or a glitch in the system somewhere. And I didn't really struggle with it all that much. And it's funny, I was having a conversation with a, a colleague of mine and and I a, d- a dream of mine of lately is I want to write a memoir. And I said, but I'm not a memoirist. You know, Cheryl Strayed's a memoirist. Uh, you know, <laughs> uh, Elizabeth Gilbert's a memoirist. I write self-help. Anybody can write self-help. And she was like, and you said you don't struggle with imposter complex. <laughs> it's like it's screaming at you. So yes, that one definitely reared its ugly head for sure in, in just being an author in general. Yeah. Yeah. So underneath, so, um, and this is sort of piggyback on some of, uh, Brene Brown's work. So I think what it is with imposter syndrome is that men and women experience it differently. At least they sociologically speaking, attach different reasons why, by which they feel, um, the started thing. So I think, and you know, the research better than I do, cause you've, you've gone through the workshop, but it, um, pull us into this. Cause I think it's that women feel much more of the social dimension of the imposter syndrome in the sense of what are they going to think about me and things like mm-hmm. that. Whereas men feel, feel or experience more of the competency side of things where people are going to figure out that they don't know what they're doing and they're not incompetent because of, of things. But, um, can you pull us into that conversation? Cause I know, I, I think you know more about the different ways men and women experience, um, imposter syndrome versus slash shame, right? When you dive in yeah. a, a deeper level. 
I think, you know, to be really clear, I don't know the science behind it, but from personal experience, I think for women, it's both. I think it's the, the social aspect of really being invested in what other people think as well as the competency of, of do I, women question their, you know, they might have all the credentials, all the degrees, all the certifications that you could possibly have and still feel like they don't have enough. Still feel, you know, I've talked to many people who are in our industry who are waiting to write a book until they get that other certification or get their MFA or whatever it is. I, so I, I think again, for women, it's, it's definitely both. Well, and what I'll say on that one is, is, is both for each, but I think given sociological sort of, um, or given the way that we socialize men and women differently, um, I think mm-hmm. men get more of a free pass to be an asshole, right? So as long as you're super mm-hmm. competent, right, you can do what you want to do, right? Whereas yeah. I think there's less acceptance of women being an asshole and not being personable and things like that. And so it's, I think it's that women have to you know, jump the double hoop. Whereas men, it's like, as long as I can like put food on the table, um, and I know that sounds very sort of, you know, barbaric based upon it, but it really comes down to as long as I could be competent and do what I need to do, like the social dimension is an optional sort of thing where I don't think there's that optionality or it doesn't feel like there's that optionality from women. But then again, I'm not a woman, so I'm just reporting, (laughs) I'm just reporting what women tell me. Yeah. And I think too, I think too, for women, we tend to, oh gosh, and I wish I remember, I think it was on, it was either NPR, This American Life or, or Ted Radio Hour, two of my favorite shows over there on NPR. And there was a study that was done and how men tend to oversell their own competency. I think it was done at some college. Are you, are you familiar with the study I'm talking about? Yeah. <laughs> Rating when, and when they, you know, they broke men and women up and men rated themselves on how competent they felt that they were. And men were more likely to rate themselves more competent and women less. So, so I think that there is my scientific research. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. Well, Liz Gilbert talks about this in big magic as well. And her point was that, um, because men are more likely to over believe to be overconfident, they put themselves in their, Uh in the position such that they develop the experience on the fly. Whereas really qualified, powerhouse women don't think they're competent enough. So they don't put themselves on base. Um, Mm -hmm. And over the course of a career, that makes a huge difference because the people who manage to put themselves on base, win, lose, or draw, like do that consistently, end up in managerial and leadership positions. Um, Not because they're better, not because, well, not because they started off better, um, but because they put themselves on base more. Um, Right. And so, um, that's comes up in a, in a quick note about heteronormativity. So we're talking men and women, we're talking gender, but we're also talking sociological norms. Mm-hmm. Um, we know people fall outside of those norms. Um, and so we just want to make room for that. So don't, don't, yeah. don't think we're saying gender essentialism, like all women feel this way and all men feel this way. We're all just, men. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're just reporting on trends. Right. And, and that actually makes me think what you're pointing out to an example I had from a client who is actually Canadian. And she's in an upper, um, I don't know exactly what her position is because we don't go into those details, but she's very high up in a very large company in Canada. And she had her annual review and she came to the session and she said, I'm having a really hard time because I was described as direct. And she's like, it just took me down. And it's so interesting to me because, you know, a man would not have at all. And she, she even said that she's like, if I were a man, this would not, I would not be having this conversation with you. And so it's 
you know, it's one of my dreams actually to, to have, have a woman in a, in a yearly review at her job be called direct and take that as an absolute 100% compliment rather than going into a shame spiral and worrying that she might actually lose her job over it. Yeah. Well, in, in corporate America, like in the military that you actually do want direct female leaders, right? You want, right. cause there's that we, I say we, I, I was in the army. Most readers or most listeners know that, but, um, you might not. So, you know, you actually select for direct leaders that will say it how it is in a way that inspires and things like that. So it's not necessarily, um, <laughs> it's not necessarily a put off, right. Um, yeah. in, in that context, but in the broader context, um, I think it is like, that's basically, um, a cover your ass way from it, from HR to saying like, people don't like you or you know, like, you know, so, or, you know, <laughs> right. um, you know, we start throwing like, maybe you're a little bitchy, you know, like sometimes when you couldn't be right, but they can't say that. So you mm-hmm. get, so you get, as I think as a woman, you get sort of this, um, you're a bit direct and you have to read between the lines of whether, <laughs> of, of what people think about you. And there you go with the shame spiral. Right. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I think that would be great that people could be people. Right. And, uh, well, and, and to add to that too, I, I love that you said that and, and have those conversations that might be awkward with the HR person or, or your, or your boss and say like, what exactly do you, can you say more about direct? And, and those are some hard conversations. And I, I talk about that a lot just in the work that I do, but that you can have hard conversations and be kind and graceful and sometimes compassionate if the conversation calls for it. I think that we, when we think about setting boundaries or having hard conversations, so many times we think automatically that they need to be confrontational. And that's not the case. Communication is still one of those things that never goes out of style learning about. I I don't think that really any of us learn this in college. I, I think it should be not even an elective. I think it should be <laughs> mandatory classes. <laughs> the world would be a different place. Yeah. Um, and so for listeners who want to read more about this, Susan Scott's Fierce Conversations is a great book because it's really about developing this backbone to go into a conversation that's fierce, but again, not confrontational unless it needs to be, right? Because right? sometimes <laughs> you need to have a confrontational um, conversation with someone, sometimes, right? Um, and, and I think a lot of times when that happens, somebody's waited too long to have the conversation. Exactly. Somebody's waited too long. So, um, learning about communication, fierce communication is a good one. Um, the new, um, one minute manager is a good one for leaders and entrepreneurs and managers. Yeah. So the one minute manager talks about, and it's kind of old school, but it talks about the one minute reprimand, right? And we don't use the word reprimand anymore because it sounds too church nunny, right? Um, But (laughs) the basic idea is when a teammate does something that doesn't meet the standard, that rather than letting it build up and wait forever, like very quickly, you say, you know, I'm disappointed that we did not like this was not done to what it needed to be, or this is really frustrating that we're mm-hmm. having this conversation because this was this needed to be done by today and it's not. So yeah. right. And just really owning that in that moment, right? Of like here's where it is, but doing it quickly and briefly. And what it actually does, having experienced this with my with my work, but also with my clients as well, is it makes people trust you more, which is this weird thing. Because yeah. if you're doing a good job, they know that you're going to get the one minute praise, right? You're going to get like, you're going to tell them that. But if you know that if you're out of bounds, you don't have to guess. If you're out of bounds, you know, right? right? Um, if you're in bounds, you say know. what's there, right? Mm-hmm. To say what's there. And so another great tool, third one on this one, um, because apparently I'm, I'm in the book re- recommending mood is touch points, um, which talks about having these conversations in between meetings, as opposed to waiting until the annual review or performance review. Mm-hmm. Um, they're all saying the same thing. If you need to have a conversation, yeah. 
have it sooner and have it in the context yes. by which it comes up as opposed to waiting forever. And then you've got a list of 82 things that you got to tell someone about. And no one wants that conversation. Nobody wants that conversation. And when you don't have the conversation as soon as possible, somebody, whether it's both people or the person that needs to have the conversation is making up stories about what's going on. Cause that's what we do. That's what our brains do. We're meaning making machines. And typically those stories are inaccurate and cause we don't have all the information and then it just can snowball from there. Absolutely. And, um, the fact of the matter is, is like, whenever you look at whatever, whatever you're doing, there's the amount of work that needs to be done to do that thing. And then there's the story you have about the work. Right. And it's always the story that has this, lot, this outsized effect because it's working on you and you're working on it, but you're not actually getting any work done, right? Mm -hmm. And so the, the less you can minimize sort of these unproductive or counterproductive stories, the more, excuse me, the more that you can minimize those, um, the more that you're just going to be able to focus on the task at hand because whether you're an author, like it comes down to books on screen, right at first, right? And then it's number number, <laughs> number of book sales second, right? right. Which, all sorts of things. That's really what matters. Everything else in between does not, right? On that dimension of yeah. one's life, right? But if you're a manager, mm -hmm. there are certain types of things where there's the work that it takes to get the result and the result, everything else, especially if it's not in, not helping you, is a story that can be worked on and changed. And the stories can be really parasitic emotionally and temporally, meaning they take a lot of time and they drain your emotions. So work on those stories, folks. Yes. Um, so uh, there's 14 habits yep. and um, I'm always curious because whenever there's a, um, a diagnostic book like this, I would say the same thing about 52 ways, right. Or, or 14 habits, right. There are always some of those which um, are more common than others, right. There's kind of mm -hmm. like a go-to places that you as a coach or as a teacher would say, okay, if you don't know where to start, start with these two or three. Um, of the 14 habits, which two or threes would you point people to and why? I think that the most common, I'll start with isolating and hiding out. And what that looks like is when someone is in crisis or in some kind of struggle, personal or professional, Sometimes they think about reaching out to somebody for help. Sometimes it's not even an option that crosses their mind. And their self-talk might sound something like, um, I don't need to t tell anybody about this. I can power through it. Or, you know, Charlie doesn't have these kind of problems. I I'm too embarrassed to tell him. Or um, she's got so much on her plate right now with work. I don't, I'm, I'm just not going to. And we, or we procrastinate on it. We put it off, you know, like I'll talk to him about it next week. And then the next week turns into, oh, it doesn't hurt as much. So I'm not going to. And this is never, <laughs> this actually creates an even bigger habit. And there, we do this for several reasons because we're afraid of being brushed off. We're afraid of that someone might not have time for us. We're afraid we're just ashamed of our own struggle. I know that that was my own personal story for a long time. I found myself in a place where I was not happy with where I had turned out, bad relationships, um, pregnant and unmarried. It was right around the time all my friends were getting married and having babies. It was, it was humiliating and I was so ashamed and I didn't want to tell anybody. And I think that that is very, very common. We want to engineer our lives to be perceived in a certain way. Because when we are not perceived the way that we want, those are our shame triggers. And even, even if we have evidence that those people will show up for us, sometimes we still stop before we reach out for help. So that is one that I think is very, very common along with its sister numbing out. 
I think that we live in a culture. I think that we're getting a lot better though. I will, I will say that silver lining is, I think we're getting better, but I do still think that we live in a culture where we have a lot of emotional illiteracy and, uh, we don't like to feel hard stuff. So we numb it out. It's as simple as that. Well, and you know, I was just having a conversation with another guest about this is that we actually have all these wonderful technological devices that as soon as we don't feel absolutely tip top and Instagram ready, we can press a button, mm-hmm. right? And get our little digital right. dopamine drip, right? And then we don't have to feel bad about something, right? Mm-hmm. And so we're distracted. we're distracted and we're, you know, whatever that might be. And even feeling bored now, right? That like yeah. feeling bored means is bad. Like we got to do something. And so we've in some ways gotten to the point to where we can't feel bad, Right. Um, and we've enabled ourselves through technology and button pressing, right. To, as soon as we feel mm-hmm. bad, like we jump into, so, um, you know, we end up in all these really, I, I sometimes like when you, you, you know, this as a coach, like when you actually deconstruct people's, um, resilient strategies or their coping strategies, especially their coping strategies, uh-huh. they're like this Rube Goldberg system. Right. And if you don't understand Rube Goldberg, it's like, you know, it was an artist and basically there's this really complicated contraptions to do things like turn off a light switch and it would be a whole room full of contraptions like this thing did this thing and this thing did this thing and this thing did this thing all to program a light switch Uh excuse me to turn a light switch off and so when you really deconstruct what people are doing with a lot of their patterns it's they're layering all of these other coping strategies and other sort of systemic things because they don't want to do the thing right um and then we get so busy maintaining those systems are so busy you doing all those things that we then feel like we can't address the thing because we're so busy. <laughs> and it's just, we have we, all the other things to do. We uh-huh. have all the other things to do, <laughs> right? Because it was more convenient to add one other step in the process, one other th- way to avoid this. And then we end right. up 17 ways, but we don't know how to go back to the one way. So um, the whole reason I wanted, I went down this trail is that sometimes it's that sense of as soon as we get uncomfortable, we'll start building and adding steps to get away from the discomfort. And we get to mm-hmm. a point to where we're so far downstream that we can't friggin' turn the light switch off, right? Without right. without hitting all the things. And sometimes it's just kicking all those away and just sitting with that discomfort, that shame, that vulnerability, that boredom and saying, okay, mm-hmm. no systems, mm-hmm. no hiding, no buttons to push. What the hell do I do with this? Isn't it crazy? I, I think that for some people, what you reminded me of when you, when you told that story is I had a client once who was a chronic overachiever. She was um, also really struggled with control as well. And I gave her the assignment. This was a couple of years ago and it was probably, I don't know, in the month of October, maybe, maybe it was late September or October. And I gave her a challenge to not do any more projects in her house or otherwise until the end of the year. And she, you would have thought I asked her, you know, to set her whole house on fire. And, and, and it really wasn't when, when I give people those kinds of assignments, it's not about not doing the projects. It's about what is coming up when you are sitting there with your, you know, sitting on your hands, feeling like you're going to crawl out of your skin. And I don't even always expect people to know right away what it is that they're avoiding feeling. Because I think that like you were, you were saying, we have come so far away from that and we don't really, I mean, I don't know about you, but I grew up in a house where we didn't, my parents, God bless them, did the best they could, but they didn't have the vocabulary to talk about feelings or to go through hard things together as a family. Like you went in your room with the door closed and did it on your own. And so I think, I think that's a common story with a lot of families. And 
again, I, I work with a lot of people who just, who don't even know, you know, there's like that big question in coaching. It's like, wow, what are you, when you're in the pantry, like, what are you really hungry for? And some people are like, I don't know. <laughs> and that's okay. I, you know, I say all that to like tell people it's okay. Like we don't expect you to know exactly what it is that you're running from, but like sitting in that discomfort, I think that we, you know, the discomfort isn't the problem. It's the, it's the feeling that we shouldn't be uncomfortable. That's the problem. And I love normalizing discomfort. I, I, I don't say, I don't, I don't think that I've necessarily befriended discomfort, <laughs> but I think I've, I've like kind of opened up the, you know, the door for it a little bit. I don't know. How about you? Well, I, I think discomfort is much like, you know, a wind chill of negative 11. Like <laughs> you learn to tolerate it, but you never really want to go out and stand in negative 11, you know, um, degree temperature. Right. And I, I think this is where I get super frustrated um, when people start talking about getting out of your comfort zone, because I'm like, you don't actually get out of it. You just expand your comfort zone, right? You get more able to handle things that are more discom- more uncomfortable. But at that level, if you're really playing your best game, you're going to be uncomfortable about something else. Because I think it's more like, yeah. and I, I love the man in the arena quote. So just Theodore Roosevelt, like it's not the critic account, it's the man in the arena. It's a long quote. But anyways, um, in, amongst personal development people like me and Andrea, like we all know what we're talking about when, when we mm-hmm. mention Teddy quotes, man in the arena, right? Um, but I look at it like as soon as you've mastered whatever like came through the last gates of the arena, you're like, yes. Like new doors open up and there's a bigger, badder or more creatures like, oh, damn it. Really? More but discomfort. More yeah. discomfort. Yay. A bigger challenge. Awesome. Right. Um, yes. And so I think once you ad- adapt to the reality that you you either have two options if you're in the arena of, of life, right? You can either say, I'm going to, like, I'm in the arena right now. I'm dealing with whatever I'm dealing with. And I know that as soon as I deal with that, there's going to be gates that open, right? I'll get the cheers. I'll get the triumph. Everything will be awesome. But I don't get out of the arena, mm-hmm. right? There's no, this is hotel, yeah. this is the Hotel California of arenas, right? You never actually leave, right? Check it anytime you want, you can never leave. <laughs> yeah. um, and so you have an option of saying, okay, I'm going to be in the arena my entire life until I die. Mm-hmm. And then who knows what right. after that, right? So I can accept one or two things. Um, with this challenge, I'm going to coast and to say, you know what, guys, I'm done. Like, I don't want any more, <laughs> right? This mm-hmm. is, this is a level of mastery that I'm going to get. Or you can say, you know what, I'm just going to get there and there's going to be something else. Um, but believing yeah. that at some point things will go away because in, um, so we don't talk about this enough. I've started to talk about it more. So maybe, maybe we're changing the game here, but like people don't understand that there's post accomplishment depression. Right. Oh, I totally have experienced that. Right. So it's a thing. Olympic athletes, once they win the gold medal, they, they will have severe bouts of depression that follows. Um, part of it is because they've oriented their entire life to get the goal. And then they get the goal and it's like, well, now what? Like, is that really what my life is? Like, what can I do this next year? And so all these sort of existential things come up. But we don't have to be Olympic athletes. You can be a book author, right, who mm-hmm. has a great launch. And then you're in a funk for six weeks after that. Right. Because, and and you're like, what's going on? I should be on top of the world. It's a shame story that comes up, right? I should Mm -hmm. be on top Mm -hmm. of the world. And I can't talk to anybody about this because I'm a New York Times bestselling author. Right. Um, I'm on all the shows. What do I have to complain about? What Mm -hmm. do I have to complain about? And even if I do have it to complain about, who do I complain about it with? Because everybody else is like, are you kidding me? That is Mm -hmm. such. Um, that is such a, 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 you know, uh, first world problem, 
to be like, oh, right. like poor me, I'm a book I'm in, you know, but at the same time, it's there. What do you do with Everybody it? Everybody has their cross to bear. Everybody mm-hmm. has their cross to bear. And so that's what I'm saying about the arena. Like you have that success, Olympic athlete, book author, new job, great marriage, whatever that might be. And then all of a sudden the new challenge that opens up is not beating something else. Yeah. But sometimes sitting with yourself and what you've done and being comfortable with that. That's where the real challenge. And it reminds me of um, one of my favorite lines of the Tao Te Ching is, and this is a paraphrase because the Tao Te Ching is nothing but a paraphrase, right? It's um, she who can conquer the world, I count as strong. She who can conquer herself, I count as truly powerful. Um, and the idea is, you know, it's fairly straightforward, which is why I love it. It's like there comes a point to where you realize about the arena that it's not about the gates and everything that's coming through it. It's about the person standing there in the center and how she thinks about herself. Mm-hmm. Um, so long digression. What I want to say is in one, two, three, maybe four instances in this conversation, we come back to you dig under, you go under this habit, you go under this fear, you go under this and there's shame under there somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, that's not necessarily an accident. Like I th- think shame is the, I, in your words, shame is the root of some of these. So tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah. I think that what's interesting is that we, you know, I, I have a lot of women that come to me and almost sheepishly say, you know, I really like Brene's work. I like how you talk about it too, but I don't really walk around feeling ashamed. And they almost, it's almost like, am I doing it wrong? Do I not belong here? And I, I get that. And, and yeah, I don't, I don't really either. I don't walk around with my tail between my legs, but what we're doing essentially when we're participating in behaviors, like I'll just name a few of them. So it's perfectionism, control, people pleasing and approval, seeking self-sabotage, overachieving, what we are doing is we're allowing shame to, you know, be the ringleader, really. And because in the, in, usually, I don't think this is even at a conscious level, but we know what shame feels like. We've experienced it some way in our life. I tell a story in the book, <laughs> seventh grade math, when I, I got a bad grade and um, everybody knew because the way that our teacher handed out the papers and And, you know, that's just one instance that stands out for me. So of course, nobody ever wants to feel that way. So we, we do these habits in an effort to try to engineer our way out of shame, to avoid it at all costs. So we're actually letting it control us. And and the thing is too, is that I don't, I didn't write this book so I could tell people how they're doing it wrong and they need to fix it. I wrote this because I want the win I want for people is to know that they're in it quickly, you know, know that they've been people pleasing because they got triggered about something. And, you know, now they're, they find themselves making three dozen cupcakes for somebody who doesn't really even need them saying yes to something that you adamantly do not want to do. Know quickly that you're doing it so that you can get out in front of it and change your behavior into something that is in more of alignment with who you really want to show up as. That's what I want the win for people to be. Yeah, well, it's fascinating how our fears, our shame, you know, sort of these stories, they actually hijack, you know, what we're doing. I I sometimes call them operating assumptions where like they are like the operating system of your computer and you're just going through the motions that that these stories are telling you to do. And then, like you Mm -hmm. said, you catch yourself making three dozen donuts for your neighbor that's, you know, two doors down. 
um, and you're wondering what's going on here and you're like, oh yeah, I forgot my daughter's birthday last year or two weeks ago. <laughs> and I'm, I haven't really dealt with that. And that's showing up as these three dozen for this kid down the hallway that I don't even mm -hmm. know. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and so you can get out ahead of it and say, how about I make these for my daughter? <laughs> right. As opposed right. to making them like, even if it's late. So it's just, um, I think most of our work as coaches is actually teaching people to catch themselves in the process and then giving yeah. them a useful trigger, a useful response to that. Because if you catch yourself in the process and you don't know what to do about it, that's even more frustrating because then you're just standing there with cookie dough and, or with you know batter on your hands and you're like, well, right. crap, do I finish In it? the dark. <laughs> in the no, dark. No, no less. Like, when you, I always say like it, it, uh, the analogy I like to use is if you walk into a kitchen and it's pitch black dark and there was a party the night before and you're having to clean up, like you turning the lights on is so much easier to clean up what's going on. And that's what I love to teach is, is this isn't about trying to make everything completely change it. Like I'm not asking you to change your negative thoughts into positive ones. I personally don't know anybody that does that. <laughs> it's about, again, yeah, it's about turning the lights on and shining the light on these things that are, like we've been talking about, uncomfortable and and really looking at these parts of ourselves that our brain a lot of time tells us are unlovable. Like don't tell anyone about that, about you, because the person will not love you anymore or reject you or laugh at you, et cetera, et cetera. It's shining the light on those things. Absolutely. And speaking of shining lights on, whether, whether you're talking about reading Andrea's book or any other sort of book like, you know, that, that's talking about um, these types of things, remember that you don't have to turn the light on in every room of your house at all time. Yeah. At, at no, every moment. <laughs> Do what? I, I don't recommend that at all. <laughs> yeah. You don't have to go through, turn on all the lights and then be overwhelmed by everything. Like turn on the light on the room that's going to make the biggest difference or better yeah. yet, the room that you're standing in. Right. And just focus on that for a time. Right. Because I think that's what happens. Right. And um, there it reminds me of it doesn't matter which book, but like there, there's a certain amount in our space of personal development and self mastery where there comes to like this navel gazing, navel gazing and rummaging that happens where it's like, I'm going to figure out all the things. Right. And then figure out why yeah. all those things happen. And then it's like, you're first off, you feel worse. And second, Absolutely. Off, <laughs> you're, it's not actually a useful process for cataloging all the great things in your life. So we have balance, not necessarily that we overlook those bad things, but that we put them in the context of everything, right? And so then all of a sudden you feel like this helpless person that's a victim of all these circumstances. But no, like yeah. find a thing and say, ooh, ooh, that one really calls to me. That one thing made me mm -hmm. cry. Like we look for a physical response. Either a tear snuck mm -hmm. up on you, um, you lost your breath, um, you feel a pit in your stomach, like use your body to help you figure out which one of these you need to work on and then turn the lights on in there and start cleaning up that room. Don't do it for yeah. every, every place everywhere. I agree with that. And it's actually, I think the, the psychology term is called over-identification. And I get a lot of people in my community that do that and they overthink it. And then they're, you know, they're messaging me on Facebook or <laughs> they're like, I've, I'm doing this behavior. Is that, the, and they're trying to, I always tell them like, put your label maker away. Like, and they're trying to label it. Is it this or is it this? And I'm like, it doesn't matter <laughs> if it makes you feel terrible and it's not in alignment with the person that you're, that you really want to be and that you feel as your true self, then it's something to work on. But I've, I've said that to many people too. Like, let's just focus on one thing at a time. I get a lot of overachievers 
and um, they want to do, I, I think that happens a lot in personal development. I see a lot of perfectionism in personal development. They want to do it all and they want to get it right. And, you know, they'll be damned if they get anything less than an, than an A. And that's not how this works. Trust me, if, if there was a way I would have hacked into it by now, but it's, it's really, and again, like you said, like once you think that you have mastered something, guess what? There's going to be something else for you to work on as well. So new level, new devil. I don't know who said that, but I, I love that quote. New level, new devil indeed. And I mean, I think mm-hmm. part of it is we, um, especially if you're an overachiever and, and things like that, there's so much by which we, um, really praise busyness and busy work. So like we can totally talk about how busy we are. And we can totally like I'm doing this, and then I got to take my kids here, and blah, 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 pat each other right? on the back, pat each other on the back. And so <laughs> it's like sometimes being an over identifier, it's like and I've got all these things, and then look at this, right? And so it's like you don't. I mean, you might have 99 problems, but you don't need to create them, right? You don't need to create nine an, an additional problem so you can put it on the list, right? Um, yeah. of, of things to accomplish. Like you might have one that you fall over mm-hmm. every damn day how about we start there? Yeah. Right. And until we yeah. um, at least don't fall over it every day or when we fall, like we don't fall on our face, we kind of stumble and laugh about it and move on. Right. Um, and so, and this also reminds me of sort of the Benjamin Franklin um, sort of way of doing this um, where it's like he would pick one, one virtue and he would work on that one virtue um, and just focus on that thing. And then he'd move on to another virtue. And so maybe what works for you is to pick one and work on it until pick complete. One. Or complete for now. <laughs> right. And then well, the ne- and it, it, it reminds me of like the whole multitasking thing. And science shows us that multitasking is actually not that helpful. And it makes us less productive. I think that it's the same with personal mastery and, and personal development. If you, if you spread your focus out on all these different things, you're actually not going to make as much growth. So hopefully that'll light a fire on, on people to just work on one thing at a time. Yeah. Well, and when we're talking about self-destructing habits, um, it, is harder in some ways to lose a self-destructing habit. Um, well, in a lot of ways to lose a self-destructing habit than to replace it with a positive constructive habit. Right. And so you'll have to do a lot more work to let go of a habit because that's why we call it a habit. It's what you do without right. thinking about it. Right. Um, it's not like it's a normal choice of do I want to eat a ham sandwich or an egg salad sandwich? It's not that type of thing. It's like, you're doing this thing. It's your default. Um, mm-hmm. you have programmed yourself to do it. So to stop doing it, you have to do one of the hardest things that humans do, which is inhibit thoughts and redirect action. Like that's, you know, if you read Your Brain at Work by David Rock, inhibition is one of the most cognitively taxing things that we do. Um, And so for a self-defeating habit, you have to inhibit inhibit the thoughts, inhibit the stories, and come up with a new course of action. That's hard work, folks. Mm -hmm. One at a time. (laughs) It is hard work. And I think, you know, that's what I'm thinking is directly related to what you were just saying about one thing at a time. And and that's why the very first chapter of of the book is about your self-talk. And I think that because so many, well, I I think I can say like all of the habits are sort of rooted in your self-talk. And I think that I know that anyone's self-talk is also their own shame manifested. So I, I don't talk talk about that a whole, whole lot with my audience because like they can get on board with negative self-talk. But sometimes when I start talking about shame, like eyes glaze over and they, they get a little nervous, but, but it really is, it is, it is our shame. And it is also 
though that self-talk that creates our core beliefs. And you know, some of our core beliefs are positive and a lot of them are negative. And core beliefs most of the time are things that we don't think about on a regular basis. Same with negative self-talk. So for anyone listening, focus on that, the, the way that you speak to yourself, the way that you might be comparing yourself or your creative endeavors to other people. Start there because that can that can kind of bleed out in a positive way in your own self-awareness into any of the other things that you want to work on. Absolutely. And also like when you see a story or a script, I use those interchangeably. Um, and you know, like, Oh, this is a story. This is a script here. You get to do something at that point. Your first question is, is this my story or is this my mom's story? Like whose story is mm-hmm. this? Right. Um, and the second question is, do I want to own this story? Like, is this something I want to keep doing? Um, and if the answer is not, you know, no, then you got to deal with that, right? Because maybe yeah. there's some story in there that's feeding you and, and so that's fantastic. But at least you're choosing that this is the paradigm by which I am going to make decisions and I'm going to do things and I'm okay with that. But like yeah. not every story and not every script that runs through the head came from you, right? But right. doesn't matter if you accept it and you operate on it and you accept it as the truth. And that I think is where we have so much freedom and choice and power is when we say, you know what? No, I came from a family that had sort of the tall poppy syndrome. Like you never wanted to shine, Mm -hmm. right? Because somebody else would be hurt or then you would get in trouble or then you, you know, something bad would happen if you shine. So the best thing to do is sort of blend in and make peace, right? Well, fly under the radar, Mm -hmm. fly under the radar. And there may have been reasons from, you know, the background by why that was true. But at a certain point I could say, you know what? I don't want that story anymore. I want to shine. I yeah. at least want to experience what it's like and experiment with shining and being seen because who knows, maybe it's a whole hell of a lot better than what I'm doing. And I know what I, what I know what happens when I do what I do. I don't know what happens mm-hmm. when I accept a new story. So maybe I should try that one and see, and you can experiment with it. So again, yeah. you, I think that's where some of this, you know, I, I know about the, the, eyes glazing over when it's a shame, because I think when you can say, I have a shame story about this and you own that, you also claim in that same instance, I can change that story. Yeah. Right. Um, but it's when you don't Absolutely. actually claim it that you can't change it. Right. Or, you know, or you blame someone else or, or, um, it, when you were saying that, it reminds me of an experience I had where we we're talking about making up stories and I, it's, I, I'm pretty sure I tell the story in the book. I got into, I mean, anytime you want to try to figure out your triggers, get into a person, get into a relationship with someone, like all your triggers are going to come up. (laughs) I think even if you've been with your partner for years, they can still happen. So my husband and I, this was maybe a year or two ago, got into an argument and I got triggered. And uh, you know, cause I think you get to a certain age and you've at, at some point been heartbroken by someone. And and for many of us, we have abandoned quote unquote abandonment issues. Someone has left us along the way. And I left the house to go for a drive and I'm immediately making up this story. I went so far down the rabbit hole where I was planning out my single life thinking about like, we're going to sell the house. Charlie, nowhere in this conversation slash argument with my husband, did he say that he like wanted a divorce? Never even nowhere near that. It was just a heated argument that doesn't happen all that often with us. So it was hugely triggering. So I tell this story because what I realized fairly quickly, well, it took me a good like 15 minutes was that it was easier for me to start planning out and trying to control my, my single life and like, okay, I'm going to do this. And then should we live in an apartment and where would we move to? And okay, 
okay. And like, I don't want the kids to switch. I mean, this is insanity. It was easier, but it was easier for me to do that than it was to actually face, okay, what do I need to own in all of this? Where have I been massively triggered that's bringing up pain from past relationships or my family of origin BS? What, you know, what do I, what conversation, what hard conversation might I have to have when I turn around and go home? What uncomfortableness am I going to have to look at? That is the hard part. And those are the hard lessons and that is real life. And that's what makes us grow. So I just wanted to like, uh, oh man, stories. <laughs> but again, the beauty of that was that the old me could have just ran with that story and, and maybe come home and like started telling him just again, the insanity. But the, the reason that I am so proud of myself is that I realized it within about 15 or 20 minutes of what was going on. Yeah. Well, um, Andrea is a, uh, either current or recovering overachiever. And so, um, she's like, I don't like the label Charlie. Um, but what I was saying is you never find an overachiever where you don't also find a control freak, right? They, they oh, yeah. right? one in the same, <laughs> They're one in the same. And so, um, sometimes when you're triggered, like your first thing that you'll do, and I'm saying that cause I'm a, I'm a practicing or recovering control freak myself. You're with us. Uh-huh. I'm with you. We're, we're all talking to each other right here. So um, the first thing you do when you're uncomfortable is start looking for the places where you can find control, right? Because that's what makes mm-hmm. you you, right? And you don't even know you make that where, where sometimes... You want certainty. Yeah, you want certainty. You want control. Like you want, like, I'm not, I don't have to do this. Like all those sort of really powerful things that have made, that have, that have helped you fire up. But sometimes it's, what if I just let go? Like, what if I just don't make a big story? What if I don't like try to think and strategize my way out of this? What if I just sit in this discomfort, right? Um, and, or admit that I lost control in that conversation, not talking about that conversation or admit that somewhere you lost control of yourself in the past Mm -hmm. and you got to deal with that, but locking down the situation and yourself now, may not serve you well, right? May not, mm-hmm. may not do that. So just notice, and I, you know, the reason I bring that up is for me, Andrew, I know one, a powerful tool of sort of self-coaching and self-mastery has been not paying attention to my thoughts and not paying attention to that, but noticing when I do certain things that that's a signal that I'm feeling a certain way. Cause sometimes I can go numb mm-hmm. the way that you're talking about, especially if I go into the head where like I can start rationalizing. So I'm like, Oh, it's, two o'clock in the afternoon and I'm on Facebook. Mm-hmm. I know because almost like 95% of the time where it's two o'clock in the afternoon that I'm on Facebook, I'm uncomfortable about something because I don't choose huh. to go to Facebook at two o'clock in the afternoon when I'm in a good mood and things like that. I only do that when something's wrong. And so for me, it's one of those things where I'm like, Oh, what's wrong. Cause I'm only yeah. here when something's wrong or is something wrong. And that way I don't spend another 45 minutes on Facebook feeling worse about being on Facebook as opposed to saying, what am I uncomfortable about right now that, mm-hmm. that I may not have been aware of, but I'm only aware of through my action. Right. Yeah. And so you might notice that you have these really like manifest the things that you do. Maybe it's getting in the car and going and having, you know, having that, that fight with yourself about planning out your life that you only do that when you're uncomfortable. And the trick becomes, you can always use that to hack your way back into what's actually going on. So it's like, oh, I'm doing the thing. Oh, I must have been, because I'm doing the thing, I must have been feeling a certain way because I only do that thing when I feel that way. So do I actually want to turn the light switch off or on 
uh-huh. since we've been mixing that metaphor in, the, in this uh-huh. conversation. <laughs> do I actually want to flip the switch or do I want to build something, another habit, another behavior, another sort of system to avoid it? So, yeah, those are, I, I mean, I just refer to those as red flags. Mm-hmm. I have, mine is obviously like going down a rabbit hole of a story and as well as um, anytime I'm lashing out anytime I'm being passive aggressive or anytime I'm being sarcastic. The the two, the last two are typically when I have to have a hard conversation with someone. And instead of doing that, I get passive aggressive or I lash out. And it usually like right when it comes out of my mouth, I'm like, dang it. <laughs> the downside of, of being in the personal development industry, you got to walk your talk or else you feel like a total hypocrite. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's dang it. And so what we do, because it happens to me too, like I know um, there's sort of the HALTS framework, which you probably heard of. So hungry, angry, lonely, tired. Mm-hmm. I've added sick, right? Um, sick oh, or, yeah. Sick oh. or stressed, right? Mm-hmm. So I know if I'm in that one, like it's it's a great mnemonic because you don't, don't have any of those decisions because it's likely that you're going to be you know, doctor or Mr. Hyde or whichever one is the bad one. Right. Um, <laughs> just cause, right. I don't know, but you're going to be that worst version of yourself. You're not going to be the best version of human in having some of these hard conversations and already difficult enough. And the last thing you want to do is show up and then say that thing. And then it's like, Oh, Oh, I didn't mean to say that. Come back, please, please. Right. Cause right. So, so first is prevent it. They're just saying, you know, but here's, you got to be careful. Got to be super careful on this one. Because sometimes it's just a, fo- a, a mode of procrastination, right? Sometimes it's oh, just like, right, that that you've sort of set it up so that you don't have to have the conversation. So that first thing. But the second thing is, like, stop expecting that that's not going to happen. And when it happens, say you're sorry. Yeah, be as like, soon as you can. As soon as you can. Not five, yeah. not, you know, five days later, but mm-hmm. like, you know, mm, that I was wrong. That yeah. was not, mm, right? You just sort of own it and then redirect the conversation. But again, you have to be vulnerable. You have to do some of these things that we're talking about and own your shit, you know? Yeah, I'll tell you what, like some of the, the most memorable expressions on my husband's face are when I have owned my stuff and apologized. Um, he's gotten more used to it now, but like in the beginning, there were a couple of occasions where I think he expected when I, when I did like the big, like, I need to talk to you and he was expecting, you know, like, Oh no, what is it going to be? And I'm, and I'm apologizing. And I remember one time I, I had lashed out at him over something and had to, had to circle back and say what I was angry at you about had nothing to do with you. And that was all my stuff. And I'll tell you what, like nothing makes me feel like an adult. I mean, renting a car and apologizing for my own stuff really makes me feel like I have, I have made it in the world. <laughs> renting a car. I love it. But it's humbling. <laughs> yeah. It's humbling. And it, and it really, I mean, and that also, I mean, that's what massively fuels connection between two people. That's intimacy right there. And that builds trust at an epic level of just really you know, just asking for forgiveness too. And just saying like, that had nothing to do with you. That was all my stuff. And I got triggered. I'm sorry. Um, so when you're, when we're writing books, sometimes we're writing the book for ourselves, or sometimes we're not writing the whole book for ourselves. but there's a, there's a chapter that all of a sudden you realize, Hmm, yeah, that's me. <laughs> right. Um, so <laughs> yes. of, the, of the 14 habits, which two or three were really like for you, like, mm, that's the one that, that's saying like, I got it. I got to deal with this right now. I got to turn the lights on here. 
I think for sure the number one is is control. I um, I actually I know you can see it, but your listeners will. Oh, you can't because the light's bad. But I got the word surrender tattooed on my arm last year because surrendering has been some hard lessons for me. The opposite of control is is surrendering, and and it goes back to you know what we've kind of been talking about. I like many like many of your listeners, I'm sure. I like to have a a guaranteed outcome. I would like an itinerary and a syllabus if you had one. And <laughs> I want to know, I want to know how it's going to go. And that it's, it's extremely vulnerable to not know. And to just like this whole, like, give it up to the universe. Like people would say that. And I'm like, what? No, like I'll be in charge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I get it. <laughs> that one has been a huge struggle and probably, and like you were saying, um, overachieving, those are completely related. I also think that personally I was an overachiever because I always, I wanted to be known as the smart one. Like I wanted to have people know that I was intelligent and um, knew knew my stuff because I felt like not a whole lot of people took me seriously. And I, I noticed that it would surprise people sometimes when they would meet me and they're like, oh, you're so articulate. And I'm like, (laughs) that's a clear indicator that like they were not expecting that. And so I, I was massively striving for, for achievements and, and really thought that that's, that's what, that's what would make people love me and accept me. So those two are probably my biggest. Oh, and and one more being strong, the whole notion of, of being strong. I think that, um, especially for women, we wear that as a badge of honor and I would like to turn that on its head and, and just redefine what being strong actually looks like. So what does that look like? It looks like asking for help when you need it. And it looks like actually feeling your feelings instead of stuffing them down with work or wine or planning or shopping or one of the many, many things that we do to, to not feel our feelings and, and helping other people and bearing witness to someone else's pain. I know that can be extremely tough for someone to watch someone that you love grieve or, um, just go through a really hard time without trying to fix it or without trying to find something to relate or, or anything like that. Those are, that to me is being strong. It's, it's not muscling through. It's not, you know, pushing it aside. That to me is fear. That's it. That's being afraid. So I feel very strongly about it. And in the opening of the chapter, I, um, there were a lot of swear words that they, they edited out and they're like, we can tell you're very passionate about this topic. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that's one for me. Yeah. So Andrea's intensity meter and passion meter, like you can count the four letter words, um, <laughs> to tell how, how interested and passionate she is about something. Um, not that I've talked to her editor or anything. Um, <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> all right. So, um, you know, we've talked about a lot today and you're the guest on the podcast. So you get to leave our listeners with, a challenge or an invitation, depending upon whichever one most resonates with you. So based upon what we've talked about, what one invitation or challenge would you leave um, our audience with? I think the one that really is kind of like raising its hand at me right now, and it just circles back to what we were talking about around really admitting when you have screwed up. And uh, that's the, I think it's an invitation and a challenge for people to, whether it's in a friendship, whether it's at work, whether it's in a romantic relationship, when, cause it's so easy to, it's so much easier to blame or to 
um, find excuses or somehow defend ourselves. And I think that that is, I think many of us are masters at that. I know I was a master at that for a long time and, and even worse than that, manipulating and turning the tables and, and things like that in informal relationships. But to actually, when someone comes to you and says, you did this and it hurt me, just pause and say, you're right. I did do that. And I'm sorry. And there are many other things you can say, you know, how can I make it better? How can I, um, how can I do different next time, et cetera, et cetera. But I think that those are some huge hard lessons. And like I was saying, that builds trust, that builds connection. And that I just think can foster such intimacy in any relationship. That's fantastic. Andrea, I knew we would have a blast. Again, I'm so excited for you to join us on the Productive Flourishing Podcast. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me, Charlie. All right, listeners. So you heard it from Andrea. Your challenge or invitation for this episode is to find one space where you've messed up and to own that and have the conversation that you need to with the person to admit that. I'm just going to slide in that the person you might need to be talking to is yourself. Until next time, stand tall. Thanks for listening to Productive Flourishing. To get more resources that'll help you finish the work that matters and be your best self in the world, head on over to ProductiveFlourishing.com. If this episode warmed your heart or got your wheels turning, we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a review for the podcast on iTunes.